before we get this episode started, we need to thank our wonderful sponsors. That are sponsors, especially our three annual sponsors, David Carell of Universal Creative Concepts, Gardner-Webb University School of Divinity, and Campbell University Divinity School. This podcast wouldn't happen. So here's where you come in. Take a few minutes to go to each of their websites and check what they have to offer. Or if you really want to take it to the next level, be sure to tweet about this episode and thank our sponsors. This podcast is presented to you by the School of Divinity at Gardner-Webb University. The School of Divinity at Gardner-Webb University exists to prepare men and women for Christian ministry, namely the work of the Lord's Church. Our two degrees, the Master of Divinity and the Doctor of Ministry, are carefully designed to equip and encourage ministers for the calling that God has placed on their lives. The Master of Divinity offers six concentrations, and the Doctor of Ministry can be obtained in either Christian ministries or pastoral care and counseling. Should God have called you to any number of ministry vocations, or if you aren't quite sure which one yet, you will find a place here at Gardner-Webb where, as one of our former deans once said, your heart and your head can be friends. For more information on the Divinity School and upcoming events, visit gardner-webb.edu backslash divinity. This is the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship's Conversations. We are bringing you stories from across the fellowship through interviews with people doing groundbreaking work and renewing God's world. Ideas, stories, and innovation from ministers, authors, and practitioners from across the fellowship and beyond. This is Andy Hale. Before we get to our conversation, let me give you a snapshot of the next few weeks. We sat down with the podcast host and author Christian Pyatt, as well as activist and author Jonathan Wilson Hartgrove. Be on the lookout for a few special episodes featuring a roundup of guests from the podcast stage of General Assembly. And now, on to our conversation. Well, our guest for this week's podcast is kind of a big deal. Jonathan Merritt is one of the most dynamic faith and culture writers of our time. He has penned several books and is pushing over 3,000 articles for various outlets, including Religion News Service, USA Today, Christianity Today, and The Atlantic. He's also co-host of the Faith Angle podcast with Kirsten Powers. Jonathan, thank you for joining the conversation. Oh my gosh, it's, it's my pleasure. I got, I'm already laughing because you said I'm kind of a big deal, and now I know <laughs> that it's not just my mother. There's somebody else in the world who believes that, so I, I, I appreciate that, but thanks for having me on. It's a real pleasure. Well, moms are always going to tell you you're special. If, if they don't, then that's when you really need to start questioning your humanity. <laughs> Right. That's when you, that's when you need to move away from home, I think. Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, you are busy right now, uh, promoting, uh, mm-hmm. a new book and we'll certainly, uh, come back to that. But, um, you know, you've, you've got a tremendous following, um, both your writing and your work on social media. Um, we know your writing, we know your tweets, but tell us a little bit more about your story. Well, you know, I was raised, uh, very much Baptist, as Baptist as a Baptist can be Baptist. So I was raised by a Southern Baptist minister who's fairly prominent denomination. He became president of the Southern Baptist Convention from 2000 to 2002. And uh, so that was just sort of the water I swam in. I would say it was uh, evangelical. One might describe it in many ways as sort of fundamentalist. And uh, went to Liberty University, was sort of an Ann Coulter reading conservative for many years 
of my life and began to go through a transformation uh, many years ago. Because I had been raised with such a high regard for the Bible, I began to take seriously uh, the way in which I read it and the way in which I lived it. And that began for me an engagement, not just with religion, but with culture that sort of has shaped my work now. So I felt a call after graduating uh, from Liberty with a degree in biology and chemistry of all things had this sort of calling moment where I said, I want to be a religion writer. I want to write about faith and culture in uh, 21st century America and set out to do that. And the result is sort of what I am today, uh, an author, a columnist, uh, somebody who's out here trying to help people make sense of this absolutely insane moment that we're in. And uh, still at the same time, loving uh, my roots and my heritage, uh, despite the fact that I've sort of uh, sprouted a new branch and I'm, I'm sort of living in a slightly different direction. But I guess that's in one reason why I'm so excited to be with you today. Well, I mean, you've just already crossed the line. I don't think anyone has ever labeled Ann Coulter to be a conservative in any kind of form. Where, where are you getting your information from? <laughs> fake news man it's fake news <laughs> so um you know being a good baptist you uh sensing this call went to you know a historic baptist theological uh institute uh, and then you you went from southeastern baptist theological seminary to candler school of theology those those two things don't necessarily fit together maybe a better way to ask this is what, what seemed to come down your path to lead you from this early theological education into something different? Or am I misreading uh, that? You know, I felt like when I graduated with my MDiv that there was more for me to learn. Um, every theological tradition has strengths and weaknesses. Uh, one of the strengths of the sort of new Southern Baptist tradition, not, not historical Southern Baptist tradition, but the, <clears throat> the most recent iteration of it, is that it feels very certain, and uh, that can be empowering. Uh, the downside is, is that uh, you engage with somewhat of a narrow theological tradition, and you're not really encouraged to step outside of those bounds, to ask questions that may seem scandalous, to, um, to challenge uh, theological ideas that are considered to be sacrosanct. And I just knew that at, at my core, I was a question asker that uh, I often say, uh, you know, I was, I train writers also. Uh, and I always say, what are the three adjectives that describe you when you're more you than you've ever been? And for me, it's been always thoughtful, courageous, and provocative. And provocative is not something that Southern Baptists really tolerate uh, that well. It's one of the weaknesses of the tradition. And so I wanted to move from a confessional seminary to a contextual seminary. 
And that's what Candler offered me. So rather than a confession, a confessional setting where you have a statement of beliefs and you're trying to sort of mold people and shape people in that tradition, a contextual seminary uh, allows you to kind of sit around a table and says, who believes the traditional view on this? Great. What do you believe? Great. Uh, what, what would Karl Barth say about that? What would a, uh, a, a woman say about that? What would uh, uh, a black Americans say about that? What would a Korean say about that? And as you begin to critique each other, you come to a higher consciousness of the, the issue itself, of the doctrine itself. And I found that uh, to be incredibly helpful for me based on my own makeup and my value for intellectual curiosity, theological imagination, and so I'm really, really grateful again for the heritage, for the education I got at Southeastern. But I think that my educational experience there would have been incomplete if I had not gone somewhere else to a place like Candler and added that arrow to my intellectual quiver, if you will. Yeah, I think, I think one of the encouraging things I hear you saying, um, and I might be misreading it, uh, it's, it's so easy to throw under the bus completely the traditions we came out of but you are who you are I am who I am as a result of those formational experiences we had including the church we were raised in including our education um and and you're pretty open about your theological shifts I mean anybody that who's followed your your writing um certainly over the last decade sees that so what what has and continues to be the influencer around these shifts Mm-hmm. You know, it's interesting. Um, somebody said to me the other day, well, I bet you and your dad have some interesting conversations. I bet he, he wonders, oh my gosh, I didn't raise him to be this way. And I said to them, no, but he did. He raised me and I am this way. He, he actually did raise me to be this way, perhaps unintentionally. But I was raised in a tradition uh, that valued the Bible for one thing. And what's interesting is, is if you read the Bible and you understand the Bible on its, ter- on its own terms, uh, in context, the way it should be read, I would say, uh, it leads you to some strange places. Uh, you know, uh, Baylor University did a study uh, not too long ago, and folks who are listening can look this up, that said that the more often a person reads the Bible, the more liberal they become in many ways. Uh, issues like immigration, for example. So you have a lot of conservative Christians who claim to be, quote, Bible-believing, and yet the Bible's replete with all of these encouragements and urges to welcome the stranger, um, to care for uh, the orphaned and the marginalized and the widow and the outcast. And so the more that I read this text that I was taught to love, the more that my trajectory took an unexpected path. I think the other thing that happened here was I was raised in a tradition that, that claimed to value truth. Now, there was a capital T truth or absolute truth, but truth nonetheless. And you value truth over being accepted by the community, or at least that was the pretense, right? I mean, we know now that if, if you really observe some of the more fundamentalist expressions of Christianity, that there, there isn't really a value for the truth uh, unless that truth conforms to 
whatever constraints have been placed on that truth. So, for example, in the Southern Baptist tradition, if you read the Bible and you come to a different view about women pastors, no one will cheer you on for standing up and speaking what you believe to be the truth. No one will stand, stand up and say, hey, that's really courageous. You're standing up and saying what you believe to be true because it doesn't conform to what people have sort of decided should be true. And so, but, but at least the way that I was taught was you speak the truth and let the chips fall where they may. My dad used to quote, uh, I can't remember who it was he was quoting, but he would say, right is right even if everybody else says it's wrong and wrong is wrong even if everybody else says it's right. And that became sort of ironic for me because the more that I discovered what I believed was true, the more it sort of um, put me in tension with elements of the tradition I was raised in. And I was very comfortable being there. Uh, but it's because of the tools that I was given that I arrived at this. So I often say I am the way I am today because I was raised Southern Baptist, not in spite of that. We need to pause and tell you about this week's presenting sponsor. Ministering to Ministers Foundation has been offering hope for ministers and their families in tough situations and help through health promotion, intervention, and renewal for over 23 years. Healthy Transition Wellness Retreats for ministers and spouses are currently offered in Alabama, Georgia, Michigan, North Carolina, Tennessee, Virginia, and Wisconsin. By offering spiritual, emotional, physical, social, and legal assistance to ministers in all faith groups, our hope is to help them develop healthy relationships, productive work environments, and worthy transitions. For more information about the MTM ministry, contact us at 804 894-2556 or visit mtmfoundation.org for more details. Believe it or not, I think your dad was quoting Huckleberry Finn. There's this, I think it comes from Tom Sawyer, right is right, wrong is wrong. Oh Lord, I can't remember the rest of the quote. Uh, Something about uh, somebody's ignorance. Anyways, yeah, I think it was Mark Twain. We'll give credit to Mark Twain. Anyways, uh, you're, you're from the South, North Carolina specifically, right? Well, I was raised in Georgia. I lived in North Carolina, uh, for several years, uh, when I went to seminary, but was raised just outside of Atlanta. Well, take that back. I was born in Louisville, Kentucky. Spent the first few years of my life in Mississippi, then spent the majority of my, uh, young adulthood in Georgia, right. college in Virginia. I mean, I've run the gamut. I'm, yeah. I am... I am basically uh, the, the the Bible Belt in human form. So, since you're from the South and now you you live in New York, you, you kind of speak a couple languages. One is American. Uh, then there's English, and then there's you know some down here in the South that Yankee talk. But but you also speak this other rare language that uses these unique words and phrases such as lost sin washed in the blood of the lamb now i will say there is nothing that is going to scare a first time goer to church since singing a song that uses the phrase washed in the blood of the lamb so you have this this new book out and it's entitled uh, learning to speak uh, god from scratch why sacred words are vanishing and how we can revive them and it's all about language tell us the motivation behind the book mm-hmm. yeah i i um 
the motivation behind the book is it started when I was still living in Atlanta and I had written three books by the time I was 30 years old. And I just thought, okay, how much wisdom does a 30 year old have? I mean, uh, 150,000 words worth, you know, and the industry will, will ask authors to write a book like every two years, you put out a book, you put out a book, you put out a book. And I just didn't think I had the depth of wisdom and experience to sustain that. And so I just made a decision and said, I will not write another book unless I get to the point where I feel like I have a message that is so important, the world needs me to write it. And uh, I didn't know if I'd ever write another book, to be honest. But shortly after that, uh, I moved. I moved from the Bible Belt to New York City. And when I did, I ran into a language barrier. I didn't expect it. I didn't plan on it. Uh, and it wasn't the kind of language barrier you might think. Like, I could still speak English as well as I always could. I could order a hot dog or hail a taxi cab or have a conversation at an intersection uh, with a passerby. What I couldn't do was I couldn't speak God. That all of the sacred language that I had used with ease growing up in the, in the Deep South, in uh, the, the, the highly religious community that I was raised in, I couldn't use those words anymore. Uh, I, I, I found that people here didn't speak from the same script. Uh, many of them had never heard the words that I had used, and many others had heard the words, but they'd understood them to have wildly different meanings than I did. Some had been hurt by those words, growing up Catholic or Protestant, wherever they had come from, and they sort of shrunk back from those words. And I lost confidence. I lost confidence in the vocabulary of faith. And the more that I sensed this tension, either, either I would try to use a word, somebody would ask me a question, I would try to use a word, and that word I would realize had taken on such a, a negative connotation, a word like sin, uh, that I would, it would get sort of stuck in my throat. Or I would use another word, a word like grace, that's sort of like taking a bite out of a cloud. You know, you, you try to use it and you find, I've used it so often, I don't even know what it means anymore. And I found that uh, oftentimes people would ask me to stop and give them a definition, please. And I couldn't think about what that word actually meant. And so as my confidence in these words plummeted, my usage in the words decreased. And I began having conversations with people from disparate places. Now, you don't have to move to New York City to experience this because the world is changing east, west, north, south, left, right. It is changing. And so there were people I was talking to in the Midwest and the deep south where I'd come from, from the west coast, the Pacific Northwest, from Canada. And they were saying, I too have had this experience. I too am struggling to speak God in the workplace, at the PTA meetings, even in my own church community. I'm struggling to speak God. When I looked then at the data and conducted some of the data, I was shocked because I noticed it was actually at a crisis level. 
that I conducted a survey of over a thousand Americans and found that despite widespread religiosity, only 7% of Americans say they have a spiritual or religious conversation on a once per week basis. When you look at practicing Christians, that number is only at 13%, only 13% of practicing Christians. That means if you go to your local CBF church today, and you're sitting there with only the most faithful people, the only the most faithful attendees, only about one in eight of them say, I feel confident enough to have spiritual conversations once a week, which is not all that much. And when I saw that, I said, okay, this is important. This is a, a quiet crisis, a rhetorical crisis that we, uh, that's happening right underneath our noses that we're not noticing. And that's when I decided to pick up the pen and write the book that became Learning to Speak God from Scratch. You've, you've predicted through the book that, that language, in a, spiritual language in America, um, will nearly be extinct in your lifetime. And you wrote, when the speakers of language fail to transfer to its next generation before passing away, uh, linguists declare it is a dead language. Genocide is also linguicide. Economic motivation factors even are common in the modern era. We must recognize that Christians have often contributed to linguicide in many cultures through missionary efforts. Take, that, take us a little deeper there. Yeah, so what happened in early missionary efforts uh, was um, particularly because uh, Bible translation was somewhat uncommon, we would bring in Americanized or Westernized uh, texts. And we would teach foreign people, people un, non, not, not Americans, wherever we would go to whatever foreign land missionaries would go, would teach them uh, about the Christian faith using their language. And as a result, uh, people only really were able to speak God in those ways. Um, and they thought teaching them English was a, was a great endeavor. But uh, we've been lucky now, um, you know, in recent years, particularly with the help of Bible translation, that people who go and do overseas mission works are realizing the importance of valuing those local cultures and those local languages to help people articulate sacred realities in their, their native tongues. And that, that has shifted. But if you look at the, the uh, Christian missionary movement, particularly of the 20th century, you find that it was not something that valued uh, non-English languages. And as a result, they often contributed to the, the decline and usage of, of other languages and other contexts. And I think that's totally unfortunate. Well, the great philosopher George Carlin uh, said meow means wolf and cat so could it be uh -huh. that, that we're forming new words like our forebears to describe what we understand about God how God relates to the world how God relates to us and how we live in response to God um, and so could it could it be that we're forming new words it's not necessarily um, we're stopping using this language but it's just a, a creation of a a new lexicon, if you will. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, well where, where, what Carlin is, is expressing, and it's true, is that words are just signposts. 
You know, there's nothing special about a, a certain arrangement of letters. There's nothing special about that. It's what, what makes that word unique, powerful, useful, is the reality that sits behind that word. The idea, the thing that that word is pointing to. And so uh, when you talk about grace, you, you know, it's very easy for you to say, well, here's what grace is, or here's what salvation means, or here's how it all works. But, but that is merely a formulation. It's a, it's a way that we've used that word to point to something. And over time, actually, the thing that that word has pointed to has changed throughout history. And that's pretty much ubiquitous. You pick any, any religious word, it, it's changed. Uh, you take the word sin, for example. If you look at the earliest usage uh, of the word sin in early Old Testament writings, it meant one thing. By later Old Testament writings, it had shifted. By the New Testament, it had shifted again, and it's shifted many times since then. So, uh, for example, late Old Testament writers who wrote, you know, the late late Hebrew Bible writers, um, they used the word sin to mean a weight, and it was communal, not individualistic. So sin was was some was a heavy weight that accumulated on the shoulders of the community that needed to be lifted. And so, for example, you have in Temple Judaism, you have the scapegoat, and you'd put your hands on the scapegoat and place the weight of sin on that scapegoat and run it out of town. And with that, the sin had been lifted. But over time, the weight would come back down on the community, and you had to do it again. Well, if you read the New Testament, you don't really find sin as a weight. It's sort of by the time the New Testament is being written, that conception of sin is sort of dissipated. It's passed away. Now you have this concept of sin as a debt. It has almost this early economic flavor to it. And so Paul's able to say the wages of sin is death. Well, it, you would never find that in, in temple Judaism. That would, that would be, no one would ever have said that. That wasn't even a concept uh, in early uh, temple Judaism. So he's, he's using a, a sin in a very different way. Uh, the word gospel, for example, he does the same thing. Paul does the same thing. Jesus even draws on this conception of sin when he says, store up for yourself treasures in heaven. And the notion is, is that if sin causes a debt, maybe the opposite of sin, maybe good works is actually paying into that account somehow. And so that's a new conception. Now today you walk into a church and you might hear a pastor say, we have a sin problem. Well, the notion of sin as a problem that needs a solution is a, a modern conception. That's not a biblical concept, certainly, but it's a, it's a new conception. Or, hey, we, are, we have a sin sickness. Well, that's a very new conception. I mean, where in the Bible do you find lengthy treaties about, about uh, sin as sickness? You don't, really, you don't really see that. So the question is, which one is correct? And I think the answer would be yes, actually, that all of these things in some way point to a piece of a transcendent reality that is true. But at the same time, all of these things are incomplete and all of these conceptions have sort of negative side effects. And so when we talk about these sacred words, we have to say, what am I pointing to? What is this word pointing to? 
what have I meant it to mean? What are the problems with that conception? And what are new ways I might understand this word that would help me confront what it means to live in the 21st century? As you're speaking of this, I'm, I'm reminded of a dialogue from uh, The Princess Bride in which Vecini keeps using this word inconceivable and is finally confronted by Inigo Montoya's who says, you keep using that word and I don't think it means what you think it means. So what, what words do we use often as American Christians that we may not mean what we think it means? Well, that's a big big question. And of course, if you, 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 because you've read it, you know, uh, the second half of my book, I picked, I don't even know, 19 of those words or so, so 18, 17, I don't know, uh, words like prayer and mystery, God, sin, fall, grace, blast, pride, uh, confession. So there are lots of those words. I would say uh, if you ask which ones need to be reimagined, the answer is all of them. Uh, because what we know from modern linguistics is, and, and this is funny because linguists are like pastors. They don't agree on much, uh, but they do agree on this. Every language will either change or it will die, period. There are no exceptions to this. Uh, every language will change or die. That is the way that language operates. Every language will trend toward either ev evolution or extinction. And so, uh, so it is with speaking God that we have uh, now sort of locked these words in amber. But the Jewish tradition and the Christian tradition has constantly been reimagining these words in a successive generations. So the, the practice of learning to speak God from scratch is a practice of perpetual reimagination, of perpetual what I call wordplay, of getting together in community and critiquing the language that we've been using, dreaming about new, about new ways to understand these words and allowing new conceptions to be birthed in real time. That is the engine that will revive a dying language. So, you know, the subtitle of the book is Why Sacred Words Are Vanishing and How We Can Revive Them. There's really only one way to revive a dying language. And you see this, you see this in actual languages all the time. Languages like Hebrew and Yiddish and Hawaiian and uh, Catalan and uh, Irish. These languages have come back. They're called comeback languages. How did they come back? Two, two things. One, there was a renewed commitment among the community of the speakers. The, the, the speaker community decided, we're going to speak these words. Despite the tensions, despite the awkwardness, despite the obstacles, we're going to keep using this language and we're not going to stop. And two, they were open-minded and open-handed enough to allow the languages to change to meet the needs of the current moment. And so every one of those comeback languages has come back in a slightly different form. The syntax has shifted, the meanings have changed, new words have popped up. And the same is true, you, if, you're, if you're listening to this podcast and you went to seminary, you know, if you go to Israel, modern Hebrew is different than biblical Hebrew. It has shifted, the same words have changed. And that is what has always been happening in all languages 
But many of us post-enlightenment people or people from fundamentalist traditions get very uncomfortable with that because it's a process that's difficult to control. It's a process that's difficult to normalize. Uh, but we have to get back to that unless we want to see sacred speech die, completely die in our lifetime. This podcast is sponsored by Campbell University Divinity School, committed to Christ-centered, Bible-based, and ministry-focused theological education, and committed to help you answer your call with a variety of master's and doctoral-level programs. Curious about what Campbell's mission looks like in action? You should meet Jason Duke. Jason began his journey as a history major at Campbell, completed a Master of Divinity degree, and then he and his wife, Lori, went to Turkey for two years as support missionaries. On their return, Jason entered law school with a goal of providing financial platform for further bivocational ministry and mission work. But God had yet another turn in the journey for Jason. After graduating with his Juris Doctor and passing the bar, Jason entered the Marines and now serves as a JAG officer. Sometimes living out your call takes unexpected directions. How might Campbell help you discover or sharpen your call? Campbell University Divinity School offers Master of Divinity, Master of Arts in Christian Ministry, and Doctorate of Ministry programs in flexible formats that follow students to have a rich face-to-face classroom experience, even while working or commuting to Bowie's Creek, North Carolina. For more information on our master's and doctoral level programs, visit divinity.campbell.edu. I think for the most part, uh, people are generally just okay and content with with using the language that they're familiar and comfortable with when, when it comes to talking about God and the church and the Bible and all these things. But what you've done with this book is um, you've challenged readers to think deeply, to dig into the etymology and contextual meaning of a word and imagine a new understanding of the word. So first of all, how dare you challenge us to use our God-given complex brains? I mean, we're just not supposed to think for ourselves. Second of all, uh, how, do, how do we create a capacity for people to think differently? What does this look like on the local level for church pastors? Well, first of all, um, creating these spaces is about the best thing you can do, A, to grow your church, and B, to grow your church younger. Uh, so um, the latest data that we see, and Barna, a Barna group who conducted the research for this group, for this book, also conducted another research showing the main reasons why people, particularly young people, leave the church today. Uh, one of the top reasons was my doubts and my questions are not welcome in church. You see, the, uh, the transformative approach to language, the imaginative approach for language can only happen in spaces, in communities that overtly welcome doubt, that overtly welcome questioning, that are constantly holding all of these sort of theological notions and ideas with uh, a loose hand, an open hand allowing people to participate rather than saying at this church this is the way that we understand this word this concept and that is the way it will be understood for all time and if you question that you're not welcome here most people would not say that in a concrete way but they do operate that way Uh, you go to a new calvinist church uh, these days go to an acts 29 church and speak up in your sunday school class 
uh, and challenge their soteriology, their notion of the way salvation works, their notions of the sovereignty of God, uh, you're going to find really quickly you're going to be shown the door. And I will say, by the way, this is not just a problem on the right. Uh, I don't think that conservatives corner the market on fundamentalism. I mean, there, there, are, there are notions of some of those same ideas that I could not bring forward in a, an Episcopalian church on the Upper West Side. And I think that, that those trends uh, are, are driving us away from uh, any type of vibrancy in spiritual churches uh, because anyone who is truly curious who is uh, truly courageous, who is um, uh, spiritually imaginative, will say, yeah, I don't need this. I don't need to wake up early on a Sunday morning to come and be told to keep my mouth shut. And so I think for church pastors, we have to be very, very intentional. We don't just create it. We have to say it. Uh, at my church here in New York City, uh, every time we, we're, we're at more liturgical church, and so we read the text aloud. And then my pastor will say, we take a moment of silence just to center ourselves and, and to sort of center in on our breathing and to, to think about the text that was read that day from the lectionary. And he will say, uh, this morning, I want you to bring your whole self to the text that you just heard. And that means wherever you are, that's okay. If you're bringing a lot of faith in here this morning, have a lot of confidence in your beliefs, then you bring that to the text. If you're bringing a lot of doubt and a lot of questions this morning to the text, you bring that. Let's just bring our whole selves to the text today. That's really an uncommon thing. I mean, there are some churches that you would say, yes, my questions and my doubts are welcome. But how many say it? Uh, in a moment, in a post-enlightenment moment where evangelicalism is one of the dominant forms of Christianity, there is an assumption that you're like every other church unless you say you're not. And so what we need is, is we need pastors and churches to say, this is not the kind of church you've known before. This is a different church. If you are a doubter, if you are a questioner, if you are spiritually curious, this is the type of place where you will be welcome. You know, for some critics, when they, when they read a book like yours, one that challenges readers to, to rethink their assumptions and to stretch their God-given complex brains, they would say this is deconstructing without hope of reconstruction. But I have found the contrary. That One quote that sticks out to me, um, you wrote, but in the midst of our struggles to speak God, struggles that are not unique to our generation, Somehow God always finds a way to break through and keep God's people talking. If God's people have revived their vocabulary in the past errors, surely there is a way to stoke these fires again. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I have, I have such, the, the, problem, the problem with, with uh, my theology, and I use the word problem with air quotes, is... Um, I read history. You, you, you know, you talk about the, for example, the ways in which uh, American Christians have treated LGBT people, 
And you can very easily, if you're conservative, take a calcified theological position that places others in harm's way if you don't read history. But if you read history and you read about the ways that the church has treated women, uh, minorities, uh, people from theological traditions that are uh, hold to views that are at odds with your own, and the ways that we have with near consistently consistency gotten it wrong, at the very least, you have to hold a certain level of humility with that, uh, with that issue. Uh, but a lot of people don't. It, it's just, you know, literally history does repeat itself. But if you look at history, you can see a lot about the way that God has worked. And then you can begin to imagine the way that God may be working. Uh, when it comes to language, what we have found is, is that there have been periods upon periods of reimagining words, reimagining uh, the vocabulary of faith. And somehow, some way, God seemed to find a way, and the people of God seemed to find a way to keep talking, despite the unique challenges of successive epochs. And I think that that will happen again. I don't know how it will happen. I don't know if the place that it will happen will be America or not. I don't think it has to be. In fact, in some ways, it may be better if we don't uh, lead that revival. But I do think it will happen. I don't think that I don't think that in our lifetime, the language of faith will be completely obliterated around the globe. But I do think at least in the American context, uh, unless we do something, it will fall away. It will become sort of like Latin. These words will only be used in liturgical spaces. And uh, I think for a lot of reasons, if, if that happens, that would be very unfortunate. Hmm. Now, you've recently left Religion News Services. What's, what's next for you? Well, I will continue to write at The Atlantic. Uh, I'll continue to write books. I've got... Uh, articles right now in the works of people like, you know, the Washington Post and the New York Times, and uh, I'll keep writing. I mean, you know, as a writer, you just keep writing and you just keep finding homes for your writing. So, uh, you know, in some ways, religion, religion news service had uh, a somewhat limited audience for me. And uh, I really find that I get excited about spaces that have uh, a more general market readership, where I'm having to sort of uh, translate these ideas for people who may or may not be familiar with the things that I'm writing about. And so I'm very excited about the places I'll continue to write. And of course, uh, I'm going to be I'm going to be out like uh, talking about this book uh, for the next few months, I'll be uh, traveling around and speaking at churches and conferences and uh, for the next 25 weeks or so. So I've got a, I've got a long road ahead of me with this book and then uh, already at work on the next book. Um, but that will probably take a couple of years to write at least. So we shall see. Well, you <laughs> if, if people want to, if people just want to keep following me, you know, if you go to jonathanmerritt.com or follow me on social media, you'll see what I'm up to. I've got a, um, a podcast that's coming out around this book that I'll be launching called the Seekers and Speakers podcast. That'll be a special kind of six week 
podcast, and then the Faith Angle podcast will have a second season later this year. So I am I am uh, never bored. I will say that. Well, just for our audience, can you can you state the line that these two other podcasts that you do are just supplemental resources for this primary CBF podcast? Oh yes, I'll make I will <laughs> I'll make sure to do that. Sponsored by sponsored yeah. by the CBF podcast. <laughs> well, Jonathan, um, thank you for challenging us to rethink the words we use and calling us to reimagine what they can mean in our life and in the world. Oh, it is my pleasure and uh, wish you the best and love, love, love the CBF and, and what you guys are doing and love some of the, the leadership there. And uh, I'm just excited to see what the future looks like for this denomination. This podcast is brought to you by David Carell of Universal Creative Concepts. At UCC, they specialize in partnering with churches and ministries like yours to provide quality products for your logo and branding. David likes to find the right products that represent and fit your desired need and budget. UCC can logo virtually any product that you might be looking for. Need apparel like t-shirts, jackets, polos, socks for staff, youth groups, conferences, or from any other branding needs? UCC is your one-stop shop. UCC can provide all logoed items that you use for visitors, from pins to drinkware, or tees for VBS. David desires to be your go-to guy for all items logoed. On a personal note, I've been using David at Universal Creative Concepts since 2009, and I hope you will give him the opportunity to serve your promo needs. Whatever you want logoed, David does it. Contact him today at 1-888-GO-TO-GUY or 888-GO-TO-GUY.net. That's 1-888-GO-TO-GUY or 888-GO-TO-GUY.net. Hey, you won't be disappointed. Well, that's our episode. We'll see you next week. Visit cbf.net for more information about the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship, stories about our field personnel, chaplains, and church starters, as well as our advocacy work around the world. 